If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Some remarks were made last Sunday that little was said about the resurrection and more was expected or anticipated. And in response, I would say that we covered what Mark said and nothing more. In fact, if you read the four Gospels, their accounts of the resurrection, um, they are and have been described as bare bones. That is, they don't describe the mechanics of the resurrection, how it happened. They simply tell the reader that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. Consider what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, which is sort of the theology of resurrection in the New Testament. For I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. We might want more information from Mark here in chapter 16. But if you think back over the gospel of Mark, he tells us of the ministry of Jesus, including his teachings, his miracles, his interaction with religious leaders. And when it comes to miracles, we might want to ask, how did he do that, like a magician? How, how did you do that? Uh, Mark doesn't tell us, I think primarily because he didn't know, and in part because it's not relevant to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is presented as announcing the kingdom of God, not only as God's messenger, but each miracle makes clear that he is divine. So when it comes to the resurrection, this is what Mark tells us. If you look at verse number two, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. That's it. He is not here. He has been he's, he's risen. That's what Mark tells us about the resurrection. But having said all that, I do want to deal with the matter of resurrection today by answering a series of questions. Uh, I have to say that as we begin looking at the issue of the resurrection, we only partially understand what resurrection is. But we are given sufficient knowledge that is all that we need to know. As with the nature of scripture, it is not exhaustive, it is sufficient, it tells us what we need to know. Um, and a side note, and I mentioned this briefly last week, what we find in the Gospels is that the first witnesses to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead were women. Uh, this is striking, if anything, because Mark is telling his readers this, that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection, and this would cause people in the first century to say, well, I, I don't know if it really happened, because after all, you have women as the witnesses. The first century historian, among other things, Josephus, stated three things regarding J Jewish court proceedings. First of all, and this is from Deuteronomy 17 and 19, you can't simply have one witness. You must have two or three witnesses uh, 
in a trial. You can't, can't be based on the word of one witness. Secondly, women are not acceptable as witnesses. And thirdly, slaves are not acceptable as witnesses. So we can conclude, uh, in my opinion and that of others, women must have been the first witnesses to the fact that Jesus was not in the tomb because no first century Jewish writer would have included that information in its account. They would have sort of airbrushed it out and said, no, 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 let's, let's get to Peter and John when they came later. So women are the first witnesses. Actually, if you look at verse number one, which I began at verse number two, but verse number one, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Then they go and they find that the tomb is empty. So I want to answer a series of questions. First of all, what is meant by resurrection? Let's begin by saying what it is not. Resurrection is not resuscitation or difficult word for me to say, revivification, to revive, okay? It refers to someone that is brought to life only to die again in the future. We've seen earlier in this series that we have three cases, this, cases of this in the Old Testament. Uh, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah prays and a young boy is brought to life. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha also prays and brings a boy to life. And then in the most unusual story, Elisha dies. He's been buried. His body's been put in the tomb. And so years later, men are coming along uh, with a dead friend, and they want to bury him, but they notice that there are some raiders coming. And so they're like, throw him in here. And they throw his body into Elisha's tomb. And when his body touches Elisha's bones, he comes to life. So we have three cases in the Old Testament. Then we have three cases in the ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, we saw that Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, his 12-year-old daughter. In Luke 7, Jesus raised the dead son of the widow from Nain. And then in John 11, perhaps the most familiar, the raising of Lazarus. As amazing as all of these events are, each one of these people died later on. They were brought back to life, but they did, in fact, die later on. This was not the case with Jesus. One writer has defined resurrection as life after life after death. It's taken me a while to get my mind around that and what he means, but let me see if I can explain it. What is death? Death is the separation of that which should not be separated or divided. Uh, we see throughout scripture is that the human beings have two aspects to their being, the material and the non-material. Um, that which we can perceive by the senses, material, the physical, corporeal, you can touch, it's visible. But there's also that which you cannot see, that which is invisible, spiritual, if you wish, or non-material. Uh, I get really nervous around this because it seems to imply, or people would take the ball and run with it, to say uh, that there's a duality of being human. No, we are one, each one of us is one person, there are different aspects to who we are. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Death is the separation of these two aspects of our humanity. James is, uses this as an illustration but it's helpful. As the body without the spirit is dead, 
so faith without deeds is dead. So to James, and he assumes his readers, death involves the separation of soul and body. Jesus' last words on the cross point this out. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Simply put, the spirit of Jesus left his body, went to be with the Father, but his body is still on the cross and is later taken down, as we saw uh, last week, by Joseph of Arimathea. Death is unnatural. It is unnatural. It is not natural for these two parts of our being that are not two separate things. They're one thing, and yet they're torn apart in death. Death is violent. It is an unnatural intrusion into our human experience. But it's also temporary. Death is temporary. Uh, All of history is moving to this point in the future in which Jesus will return in glory and power. And at that time, all souls and bodies of all humanity will be reunited in the general resurrection. What happens between death and that resurrection? Well, we don't cease to exist. We still have existence. So it is life after death, the existence we have, and then resurrection is that life again. There is life, and it is not explained to us in the New Testament. We're simply told to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We continue to exist. We continue to have existence uh, with the Lord Jesus and the company of the saints. So there is life after death. Resurrection is life after that life, after that temporary life in which we are waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back. It will not be resuscitation. It will, in fact, be a radical transformation of our existence. This is what we see in the resurrected Jesus. But not at this point. We'll come to this in a minute. All that the women and later the disciples know is that Jesus was crucified, he died, he was buried, and now the tomb is empty. This is what they know. So, a second question. Did the women and the disciples after them understand what had happened and what it meant. That is to say, did they say, oh yes, resurrection. Jesus now has a new form of existence. This is life after life after death. Uh, If you've been with us in our study of Mark, or if you simply read the Gospel of Mark on your own, you will see that much of what Jesus said and did during his ministry was not understood. So it would be rather strange if all of a sudden people like, oh yeah, I get this, I understand this. In chapter 4, when he talks about parables, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but not understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Uh, Then later on in chapter 6, this is the incident where Jesus is walking on the water and they see him and they are terrified. He says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. He climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. 
for they had not understood about the loaves. Jesus had just fed thousands of people. They didn't understand it. They don't understand it. Their hearts are hardened. In chapter 8, after the feeding of 4,000, they'd forgotten to bring bread with them. And Jesus said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they're like, oh, it's because we forgot to bring bread. Uh, Jesus said, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? And then when Jesus, for the second time, announced his coming death, uh, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So the pattern is Jesus says something and they don't understand it. So again, do we imagine that the women come to the empty tomb, the angel tells them, you're looking for Jesus, he's not here, he's risen. Uh, And they're like, oh yeah, this is resurrection. We totally get this. They did not understand. And they would not for some time. See, historically in the first century AD, there were many men who were messianic figures. They claimed to be the Messiah. They were not, they were put to death. And their followers never said, oh, don't worry, he's gonna come back. Usually the followers just went back home or found somebody else to, to follow after. But no one ever said, oh, don't worry, he's coming back. Okay. So when, when Jesus dies and he is buried, his followers, the disciples, have no language, no theological reason to say, oh, don't worry, he's coming back. Now, Jesus had told them that he would rise again, but they had never seen this before. No one had ever talked about this before. And yet, against all their expectations, they came to know and to claim that God had raised Jesus from the dead. But their initial reaction is what we find throughout Mark. And if you look at verse number eight, I think this sort of wraps up the gospel of Mark. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Yeah, they didn't get it. We need to be careful. We are living centuries later, almost two millennia later, and we have some understanding because more has been revealed. Uh, But they didn't get it at first. They did not. We shouldn't look down on them. We should simply understand that they didn't understand what was going on. The third question is, was the resurrection, is the resurrection of Jesus important? Many Jews, thousands of Jews were crucified in the first century AD. Jesus was not the first, he was not the last. It is his resurrection, however, that tells us that his death is different. It tells us who he is and what he had done. It is his resurrection that gives meaning to his death. Otherwise, his death is simply a martyrdom, uh, an example for us to follow. We should be willing to give up our lives for others. Uh, No, the resurrection tells us who he was and what his death meant. In Luke 24, we have what is my favorite post-resurrection story. It tells of two of his followers, Cleopas and Mary walking to Emmaus, it's about seven miles away from Jerusalem, on that first Easter Sunday, the day when the women saw the empty tomb. And then Peter and John did as well. 
let me read this to you. This is Luke 24, beginning verse 14. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. You will notice that Jesus did not talk about his resurrection. He's there. He's resurrected. Talks about his death. And it is his resurrection that gives meaning to all the things that Moses and the prophets had written. As I said, without his resurrection, his death is maybe just an example, or he is just a martyr. His resurrection validates everything he said and everything he did. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, makes that point. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Therefore, let all Israel know or be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It is the resurrection that is proof that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. And yet, it is the resurrection that has caused many to turn away from the gospel. That is to say, they may listen to the first part and they like what Jesus said and did. Uh, you know, the golden rule, the beatitudes, all these things are wonderful. And that he died, that's terrible. But then when you get to resurrection, it's a, lot of, a lot of people are like, yeah, I, you had me till then and, and now I'm leaving. Uh, when Paul spoke at Mars Hill in Athens or the Areopagus, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Yeah, we're not going to listen. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. When speaking in defense before King Agrippa and the governor Festus, uh, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. 
Your great learning is driving you insane. You're crazy talking about resurrection. Paul's response, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. It's not just a first century thing, though. The attack on the resurrection continues to the present. As one historian has noted, less cautious historians forgetting that history is the study, not of repeatable events, as in physics and chemistry, but of unrepeatable events, like Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. They declare that we can indeed go farther and that we can reach a clear negative judgment. We can be sure that nothing would ever happen to Jesus' body at Easter except that it continued to decompose. Dead people don't rise, therefore Jesus didn't either. In other words, yeah, this, you know, when people die, they stay dead. We need to understand that. Others have said, no, he didn't actually physically, you know, he doesn't have new existence. What we have uh, is a case of cognitive dissonance. That is to say that people, that followers of Jesus are so overwhelmed with grief um, that they sort of lose touch with reality and sort of live in a fantasy world in which they believe that Jesus is still alive. Um, some had said that you know those who abandoned him, particularly Peter who denied him, um, they have a wonderful experience of grace. And they're like, oh, that must be what resurrection is. No, resurrection is life after life after death. Resurrection tells us who Jesus was and what he had done. And it tells us of our future existence. So it tells us about Jesus, but it also tells us about us. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul deals exclusively with the issue of the resurrection. And the problem is this. The Corinthians believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he was resurrected. No problem. They believe that. They do not believe that they will be resurrected. I think part of that is because some of the f their fellow believers had, had died and had been dead for a number of years. And they saw resurrection as resuscitation. You know, Jesus was dead for three days and then he you know, was revived. Yeah, that, that we, can put our, we can put our faith in that. But if somebody's been dead for a year, five years, ten years, and then they're going to be resurrected, yeah, that just that doesn't seem to work. And so Paul says, listen, if, if we're not going to be resurrected, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. They're like, yeah, there's no such thing as resurrection. It's like, well, if there isn't, then, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. End of story. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And since death came through a man, 
the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Paul wants it to be very clear. Jesus was raised from the dead. That means that we will be resurrected as well. If you say, well, no, that's not going to happen to us, then you've eliminated something and you've eliminated the possibility that Jesus, in fact, was raised from the dead. The faith of the Corinthians is useless. The preaching of the apostles is useless. Their faith, in fact, is futile because the apostles have lied. They're false witnesses. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it is. We have, over the years, talked about the paradigm that we find in Scripture of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God created the world. Adam and Eve sinned, and the world fell into darkness, and we live in a fallen world. Christ came into the world to redeem it. And ultimately, we will be in the eternal state. That's the consummation. It begins with the resurrection of Jesus. We're not really told a lot about what our life after life after death will be like, but we are told about Jesus, that he was able to eat, he was, people recognized him, but then he also was able to appear into a room. Seeming, I don't know if he walked through walls, we're not told. Uh, it gives us a hint into what our future existence will be. We could, in fact, do an entire series on resurrection, but I will leave it there with answering the three questions. But what I want to do now is look at the last 12 verses of Mark. We're not going to study them. We will do that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But if you look, if you have the NIV from the back book cart, it says the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Uh, some, are, some scholars have argued that in fact these verses should not be included in the gospel of Mark that Mark did not write these, uh, these last verses there are new words here that he didn't use anywhere else Mary Magdalene is described as someone uh, who had had seven demons it's the first time we hear this information the style of writing is different from what we find previously uh, and so they basically say these verses should not be included. Uh, I, I disagree. Uh, it's unfortunate that because these verses, in fact, do belong to the Gospel of Mark, and the fact that some manuscripts don't have it doesn't mean that they should be excluded. Uh, I believe that they are, in fact, part of the Gospel of Mark, and that the arguments fail at a critical point. I think scholars and who know more than I do, I, I would tell you. But they make a mistake about Scripture. And here, at the end of the sermon, I want to talk about what Paul wrote to Timothy with regard to Scripture. This is found in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think a critical question here is, is Paul describing something that is impersonal? You know, the truth is simply information. Scripture is a book of instructions. 
uh, or is it something else? Something that animates and something that gives description. He says, it teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, it trains in righteousness. Living when and where we do, we are profoundly affected by the enlightenment which, in which we find the fact-value dichotomy. And religion is usually put into the value category. Um, in, a, in attempting to stand up for the truthfulness of scripture, some have said, well, no, 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 no. It, it, scripture is not a value, it is a fact, okay? But again, in the Enlightenment world, a fact is something that is quite impersonal. It's just information. And I would say, no, no, no. The truth is not impersonal. It is alive and personal. Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. I think the King James is more familiar here, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God. I want to point out two things here. The first is germane to what I say about the last 12 verses of Mark is that scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is inspired. Scripture is God-breathed. Not the writers, but scripture itself. And the second is critical for this passage. Uh, Let me ask you, can you think of another event, another incident in scripture in which God-breathed? That God was breathing? Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Both humans and scripture are God-breathed. I'm convinced that scripture, and the point that's being made here, is that scripture is alive. It is living. It isn't simply a collection of facts. It isn't just a collection of stories. And because it is alive, it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We should agree that scripture is alive and it functions as something that is alive, not simply dead facts. You know, a fact is a fact is a fact. Teaching and rebuking point to right belief. So I think we get in trouble there because we might still say, well, Damon, that sounds an awful lot like information to me. But correcting and training in righteousness points to right behavior. Um, I suspect we're more inclined toward the right belief. Do you have right doctrine? Imagining that when we get to heaven, we'll have to take a theological exam to see if we get in. Uh, And that how we live our lives is not incredibly important, some would say. That is to say, they would say creed, not conduct. It's more important what you believe than how you live your life. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that's not the case. Scripture is alive and it is to transform how we live our lives. Yes, it does in fact teach us. It rebukes us. And by the way, I think it rebukes us in our behavior. It corrects us and it trains us in righteousness. If we think primarily, if not exclusively, in terms of doctrine, we will have a dead view of scripture. It's just information. Earlier in in the 
2 Timothy 3, Paul said, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. I, I think we would have been happier if Paul had said, You know all about my teaching, period. It's like the information. But in fact, he continues to say, You know about my way of life. We want to say that that the truth is information that we make internal, we internalize it and it's an internal uh, impulse, uh, which in in our world works out that the truth is uh, privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. No. Scripture is truth and the truth is alive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, as to the question, did Mark write the last 12 verses? Should they be included? I would answer, I don't know if he did or not. There are 12 new words, or no, 14 new words in those last 12 verses that aren't used in the rest of the Gospel of Mark. The style seems to be different. But I would say it doesn't matter because it is scripture that is God-breathed, not the individual. See, we've taken the word inspiration. Oh, so-and-so was inspired. Okay, you can use it that way, but not when you're talking about scripture. Scripture is inspired, not the writers. We, We say that Paul wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament. Do we imagine that those were the only 13 letters Paul ever wrote as an apostle? No, in fact, we know he wrote others because he tells the Colossians, uh, when you get done reading this, take it over to the church in Laodicea and then get the letter that I wrote them and bring it back and read it here. So we know he wrote other letters. Well, why don't we have the epistle to the Laodiceans? It's the writing that is inspired, not the writer. Therefore, I would say that these 12 verses should be included. And the Lord willing, we will examine them next Sunday. Here at the end, though, I want to say, the resurrection of Jesus did happen. It's crucial for us to understand who he was, who he is, the nature of his death, the reality of his ongoing existence, and our future. As one writer has put it, the resurrection is not a bizarre event in the old world. It is the beginning event of the new world, resting in and transforming the old old world. Yes, we're still here. We're still in this mess of a fallen world. But Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the beginning. He's the first fruits. The transformation is started. We're part of that transformation. So the resurrection isn't just some like fairy tale, old wives tale, you know, that people tell each other to comfort one another. No, it's the beginning. It is the beginning of the new age. It is the beginning of And Jesus' resurrection is proof of it. So it is important. And it did happen. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we freely confess that there is so much we do not understand. But we also acknowledge that we don't have to understand everything in order to live as we should. We live in the light that you have given us. And you've given us a living book, living scripture. 
not simply information, but living truth that is not only to teach us, but to correct us, to shape our life. Yes, we are to believe what we read in Scripture, but we are to live based on what we find in Scripture. We might be tempted to look down our noses at those first women who saw the empty tomb and then the disciples later and then the two on the road to Emmaus. It's like, why didn't they understand? Forgive us our pride. Help us to realize there's much we don't understand. And what we do is by your grace and by your spirit. May your spirit cause us to think on these things, meditate on them. May he give us a measure of understanding. I thank you for bringing us together today. We do pray for Lonnie, uh, that you would touch her, give uh, the periodontist wisdom as to what should be done or not be done. For the Sison family in this most difficult week as they bury their mother. For each of us as we walk through this world, may we have a sense of your presence, Holy Spirit. Teach us, correct us through Scripture. And now, may your Spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.